So I'm back again. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard for me to stay away, I guess, too much. I had this great conversation with Rabbi Wes about a month ago about Israeli Prime Ministers, about Bibi, about Eric Sharon. And we knew I was supposed to come here tonight, and this was already scheduled, and we were waiting for this, and we were both exciting, excited about this moment. And I was supposed to speak about King Solomon, and the triumph of King Solomon, the success of King Solomon, the failure of King Solomon. And then Rabbi said, hey, why don't you speak about the success or failure of Shahom and Netanyahu? That's interesting. Are you sure you should speak about Israeli prime ministers in a synagogue? It's, you know, it's, uh, it's loaded, it's out of my comfort zone, there's going to be issues, people will be upset. Does he like Bibi? Does he not like Bibi? And the rabbi said, yeah, this is, this is your Torah, you should speak about this. So, here we are, rabbi. But what I would like to say is I think both Alik Shalom and both and Benjamin Netanyahu, there are more than Israeli heroes, Israeli politicians, and Israeli leaders. They are important windows into Israeli society and into Israeliness. And I'd like to think about Alik Shalom and then think a little bit about Netanyahu and think about what does it mean that these are great leaders of Israel? What does that mean about them? But especially, what does it mean about us? And to think about Shalom as a window into Israeli and into Israeliness, let's start with a quick, very quick, Biography of Shalom. I'm going to skip many parts of his life. But I'd like to make one point about Shalom, and I'd like to start in Shalom in his early 20s. After the War of Independence, he was a student in university, he was called back to the army because there was a problem in the army. And it was the following problem the IDF in the 50s, in the early 50s, wasn't very functioning. See, Israeli society was challenged with many challenges, especially trying to absorb an incredible wave of immigration of about 680,000 immigrants. We had to absorb in a little bit more than three years. As Ali Shavit puts it, it would be like the United States of America tried to absorb 350 million immigrants within a few years. Now, it's possible that financially America would collapse. Israel almost collapsed, but it didn't. And it's one of Israel's greatest, Israel's greatest miracles, the fact that we managed to do that. And our focus was on that, not on building a strong army. The war was over, and we went on to build after we won the war. Now we need to build the country and the army was left, and the army was relatively weak, and it wasn't very functioning, and it was daily humiliated when it was exposed in its inability to deal with the challenge of those days. And the challenge of those days, what they call the Fedayun. You know what the Fedayun was? It was Arab terrorists infiltrating Israel from the borders, and from different places, from Gaza, from Judea, and from Samaria, sabotaging, murdering, escaping back to where they came from, Jordan or Egypt, 
And Israel was helpless. Israel didn't know what to do. And Shahan had an idea. Now this is an Israeli in his 20s, and he has, he's in his early 20s, and he has an idea to solve a strategic problem. And not only does he have the idea, he's asked to implement his idea. And his idea is to create a small unit that will retaliate. Every time there's a terrorist attack, we'll attack back. We will do to them, we will infiltrate their villages. We will destroy their army bases. We will crack down, we will hunt their terrorists in there in Jordan and in Egypt, behind enemy lines. And he creates an army, the first Israeli commando unit, and the most important Israeli commando unit, because it said the ethos for any Israeli commando unit, it was called, if anyone knows, 101. And what's important about this unit is not what it did. It did a lot. What's important about this unit is all the stories of what it did. Because those stories scared the terrorists, but more importantly, it inspired a generation of Israelis. Those stories set a standard for the army. Those stories of what they did and how they did it with the devotion, with the bravery, with the idea that I don't know how to translate into English of dveikut b'mesima. How do you translate that? They are devoted to your mission no matter what. The idea that you never leave your fellow soldiers alone, bashetach, in the battlefield. All these values that are going to be... The idea that the commanders are always in front of the soldiers. All the values that are going to become the defining values of the IDF were expressed by this small unit that existed for five months only and set a standard for an entire army. The Israeli army was great not because they listened to Alik Shalom, but because they imitated him. It was one army that set a very high, it was one unit that set a very high standard and an entire army tried to meet that standard. If you want, this is the story of Alik Shalom. Alik Shalom is an Israeli leader that's what's unique about him, what's important about him, that his effect is always larger than his position. He managed to change the spirit of an entire army when he is only the commander of a small unit inside that army. That is Shalom. Shalom, that's the secret of Alik Shalom. Maybe you would say the enigma of Alik Shalom. The boundaries of his impact are always larger than the boundaries of his position. Now we see that throughout his biography. I'll give another example. In 1967, he had a position. He was a tat aluf. I don't know how you translate tat aluf to the head of the army is in Rav Aluf. The chief of staff, the head of the army is in Rav Aluf. The people beneath him are called Alufim. And a rank beneath an Aluf is a Tat Aluf. Which means, he doesn't work beneath the chief of staff, which was Yitzhak Rabin at the time. 
which means he doesn't have his seat around the table. He doesn't make strategic decisions, but he's an important general. He's a tant aloof. He can't have tremendous impact, but he has some impact. He has an important role. What was his role? He has two. He has a double position. One, he's in charge of training. Um, he's rosh machleket adracha, which means when um, all the soldiers in basic training in different units in the army, he's in charge of all those soldiers and the basic training that they're going through. Is that a big position? No. Not a great position. What's his impact? He can create new techniques of how to train soldiers how to shoot guns. That's nice. It's not big picture. It's nice. That was his role. He has another role because he's a tat aluf. He's also a commander of a division. It's a pretty big unit. It's not... 60 boys in the unit 101, it's probably 3,000 soldiers. When the Six-Day War breaks down, and when the Six-Day War starts, he leads his division to a tremendous victory on Egyptian folks called Um Katif. But I would say when he does that, and he does that extremely successfully in a battle that till today is studied in different academies of war, not only here in West Point, but also in Russian academies of war, because he was a brilliant warrior. But that's not what impresses me tonight. Because when he did that, he was doing his job. He was fulfilling his position. What's interesting is what he did the moment the war was over. The moment the war is over, he's still in Sinai, after a great victory over the Egyptian army, and he makes some phone calls because he is the head of basic of all the bases of basic training, and he makes a decision to build all the bases of basic training inside the new conquered or liberated territories, and they build the camp of Golani and Sanchanim and Tandasa within Judea and Samaria. Now think of that. He's only a tat aluf, and he's trying to change the borders of the Middle East. Again, Sharon is bigger than his position. Again, Sharon, his impact, trying to change the borders of the Middle East when he is only a tat aluf, and his position in charge of how you shoot guns in basic training. He is trying to create the beginnings of the settlements in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. Before 1973, before the Yom Kippur War, no one wanted to make Arik Sharon the chief of staff, the Ramatka, the Ravaluf. So he left the army. And he joins Israeli politics. And when he joins Israeli politics, he has an idea. He's, as you know, he leans, let's say this modest, modestly, he leans to the right. And at the time, Labour Party, who had full control over Israel and Israeli politics, and he realizes that the only way to overthrow Labour Party 
is to create a very strong alternative. The problem was that the alternative was fragmentized. The Israeli right was divided into many, many small parties. He had an idea. Let's unite all these parties together and create a new party that has power will be more than the sum of its micro pieces. How does he call that new party? That party that unites all parties? How do you say united in Hebrew? Likud. Likud means you take something and you put it together. Lelaked. Alex Shavuot created the Likud. He's a few months out of the army. He's not even a politician. He's, I think in America he called it a rookie. Yeah, right? So he hardly has any position. And his impact is again way beyond his position. He creates the Likud and then something happens. A month before the elections, with this new fresh party created by this new fresh general, by the way, he wasn't the head of the party. Not at all. Bacon was. But he created it. When he's a Tataluf, he starts settling the Shtachim, and when he's a rookie in politics, he creates the party that a few years later will be the leading party of the country. Till today, more or less. With a few stops in the middle. But then the war breaks out a month before the elections. He goes back to the army. His role is now he's just a reserve soldier. He's not the Ravaluf. He is a he is a commander of a division all over again. The history of the Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur War is a war that I'd like to think about in more, more detail later on, but I just want to notice Shahon's important role in that war. He joins the war after we were surprised. And then the critical moment of that war, on the 15th of October, ten days after the war began, what does Shalom lead? He leads Israel back to Egypt, back to Africa. How does he do that? He leads the Israel. Well, in a, I'm, I'm sure you're pretty acquainted with this, but just remember the important part of this war. Both the Egyptians and the Syrians managed to invade Israel. And the Syrians managed to conquer an important part of the Golan Heights, and the Egyptians managed to conquer a few kilometers of the Sinai Desert. And the rationale of the Israeli army always was, when you're invaded, you push the enemy back, and then you try to push the war where? Into their territory. And we were successful doing that in the Syrian front. We managed to push the Syrian army back into Syria, and then enter Syria. We tried to do that with the Egyptian front, and we failed. Not only did they surprise us, but we failed to push them back to Africa. And then Shalom comes around and says, well, if we can't push them back to Africa, how about... Who says 
that we have to push the Egyptians back into Egypt and then enter Egypt, why don't we just enter Egypt anyway? Why don't we just do it anyway? And he realizes that the two divisions, the two, they called it armies, that cross the Suez Canal, Army 2 and Army 3, there is a small, small gap between them. If we could take our army, smuggle it through the gap, cross the Suez Canal, and locate critical mass of tanks on the other side of the Suez Canal, so what can that force do? What can it do? Well, first they could block the supplies of the Egyptian army. And something else it can do, since most of the Egyptian army is in Sinai, so the forces that, that enter Africa across the Suez Canal, what can they do if they want? They can go to Cairo. There's nothing can stop them. They can stop them. This was the Shabon idea. He was pushing for this idea from the beginning of the war. He managed to convince his commanders that he can do it only 10 days after the war. And finally, he did it. He crosses the canal and changes, automatically, changes the entire structure of that war. Again, he's the commander of one division. But he decides the fate of the entire army. And if you want, he changes the, his the history of the entire Middle East. That's Alex Shalom. His impact is always greater than the limits of his position. Seventy-seven, he's appointed to be a minister in Begin's new government. He's the minister of agriculture. Traditionally speaking, ministers of, the Minister of Agriculture has a very important job. He defines the prices of tomatoes. If he's very effective, he could probably affect the price of cucumbers also. Alex Sholem uses his position as the Minister of Agriculture to build as many settlements in the West Bank and Gaza as possible. <laughs> In 82, after Begin is elected again, this time he is not the Minister of Agriculture anymore. This time around, what is he? He's the Minister of Defense. And he has a great idea. That after the PLO left Jordan and located itself in Beirut, maybe we should enter Lebanon, attack Beirut, and destroy the PLO. That's a nice idea. Especially because there were Katusha's rockets on the north of, north of Israel. Let's not just stop the rockets, let's destroy the PLO. That was Alex Shabal. The Begin government, now there's, what I'm going to say now is very, very, well, it's, it's, it's a very disputed point, and it's, there's different visions and different opinions about what really happens here. What's commonly understood is that Alex Sharon asked the Begin government to approve what he calls Tuchnit Oranim Gadol. Oranim Gadol is the plan of the Israeli army going to Beirut and destroying the PLO. They didn't improve that program. 
the Begin government said no to Ali Sharon. Again, Sharon has a different vision and, and his sons and his family and his reporters have a different understanding of what happened. What's classically understood right, is that the Begin government didn't accept the plan of Ali Sharon. They accepted a more modest plan called Oranin Katan. What is Oranin Katan? To try to not destroy the PLO, but to push the PLO 40 kilometers from the border. Why 40 kilometers? Because that's the Katusha range. Meaning, let's not destroy the terrorist organization, but let's try to push the threat away. So the government, the government was fine with that. Menachem Begin said yes to Oranim Katan. What did Alex Shalom go on and do? It seems like, considering the results, we found ourselves in Beirut. We found ourselves on the road between Beirut and Damascus. So this is commonly understood the Begin government only said yes to Oranim Katan, but Alex Shalom is always greater than himself. <laughs> and he went on and did Oranim Gadol. The rest, I thought, you know the rest. We get in trouble in Lebanon, Sabra, Shatila. There's Israeli protests. There's a committee led by a judge called Kaha. The committee, the, the committee recommends that Alec Sharon will resign and he won't be a defense minister and he should never be a defense minister again. Once he resigns and it's understood he'll never be a defense minister again, a reporter close to Alec Sharon said the following line. Mishalo Ratzayt Sharon Keramatkal Kibel Oto Kesar Bitachon we translate this. He said that the people that didn't want Sharon as the chief of staff, in the end, got him as the minister of defense. And now the people that don't want him as a minister of defense, one day, one day, they'll have to acknowledge the fact that he is the prime minister. That prophetic line of an Israeli reporter close to Alex Shalom called Uridan was, it seemed like. Shalom was gone, Shalom was politically dead. But as you know, Shalom came back. He came back and became the Prime Minister, and here is a dilemma. If Shalom is always bigger than his job, if Shalom's impact, is all, the boundaries of his impact are always way beyond the boundaries of his position. How can he have a larger impact than his position when his position is a prime minister of Israel? Well, when you're Alec Shalom, it's possible. <laughs> Alec Shalom managed to overcome that position when he turns against the entire biography of Alec Shalom. As a prime minister, the man who created the settlements was the only prime minister that dismantled them, that evacuated them. And as a prime minister, when he founded Kadima, 
The second paradox of Alik Shalom, it's not only that the same person that created the settlements, he's the one that evacuated them, but the same person that created the Likud was the one who tore it apart and created the Kadima. So his entire life, his impact was greater than his position. And when he's in the top position, he goes against his entire life. He wasn't the greatest ideologue, that was Menachem Begin. He didn't have the greatest vision, that was David Ben-Gurion. He wasn't the greatest diplomat, that was probably Abba Ibn. But he was the most effective political leader we ever had. For good or for bad, Alik Shalom was the most effective leader. And what we learn from the enigma of Alik Shalom is that the boundaries of your position are not necessarily the boundaries of your influence. I'd like to think a little bit more. Now that we went through, in broad strokes, I tried to give you a flavor of my understanding of the biography of this great person, Valik Shalom. I'd like to think about one moment in his biography, because it's a great window into our biography, the biography of the Jewish people. I want to think again about the Yom Kippur War. After the war, there was a lot of rallying in Israel against the Mapai government. And this rallying led to a committee that wanted to investigate what went wrong. The person that led this committee was called Shimon Agranat. This was the Agranat Committee. And they had to understand how is it possible that we were taken by surprise in 1.52 in the afternoon, in the 6th of October, right after Musaf of Yom Kippur. How are we taken by surprise? And the research is very interesting. But in order to understand the research, what I like to do is, I like to think about what happened to the hearts and minds of Israelis at that moment has everything to do with the Jewish psyche, with human psyche, and I'd like to move back to the prophet Jeremiah when he was thinking at their moment of destruction, not the destruction of the Bayit Shlishi, like Moshe Dayan called it, of the third, um, not the temple, the commonwealth, but the first one. And you have here, you see in chapter 7, I think it's page 1 here, chapter 7, in the Southern Sources. Jeremiah is walking, Jeremiah has this troubling sermon that he delivers in the temple in Beit HaMikdash. I'd like to read verse number one. I want to read this in Hebrew, okay? And feel free to either listen to the to Hebrew or listen or read it in the translation of the holy language of English. Hadavara Shariali Miyahu Meta Dunai Lemo 
עמוד בשער בית אדוני וקראת שם את הדבר הזה. ואמרת, שימו דבר אדוני כל יהודה הבאים בשערים האלה להשתחוות לאדוני. This is going to be a very anti-temple sermon. And ironically, where does the prophet Jeremiah have to deliver the anti-temple sermon? In the temple. It's going to be an anti-priestly sermon. Who has to deliver the sermon that's against the priests? Jeremiah, which is himself. He's one of the priests from Anatot. He is a priest that's going to preach against priests. Anyone that came from the Hartman, anyone that was in, who here was in the Hartman delegation last summer? You come to Infrat? When you saw Wadi Kelt, you saw Anatot from far. That's, that's where Jeremiah used to live. That was, according to some scholars, to some interpreters, that's where priests used to hide from the corruption of Jerusalem. So he is a priest that speaks against priests. He goes to the temple to speak against the temple. And what is his anti-temple sermon? It's the following, If you will repair and change your behavior, so you will stay here in this land, in this temple. And then he says, Don't put your trust in illusions that say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah is exposing us to the fact that in his days, there was a mantra that was said again and again in the roads of Jerusalem. Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Here's what he's asking them not to listen to. To the following religious understanding. That Jerusalem couldn't be destroyed. Why can't Jerusalem be destroyed according to this theology that he is fighting? Why can't Jerusalem be destroyed? Why? Because God lives there. The fact that God lives there guarantees immunity to Jerusalem. So Jeremiah says to them, listen, if you will sin, God will destroy Jerusalem. And then through their theology, with their religious sensitivity, that is impossible. If we will sin, God, if we won't be sensitive to the weak, to the poor, to the widow, to the orphan, God will destroy Jerusalem? Why can't God destroy Jerusalem? He lives in Jerusalem. It's like, if you want to think about how interesting this theology is, it's like a situation of when someone hijacks, when, you, when someone kidnaps someone. So what's one of the roles of the hostage is what? To guard the hijacker. Right? 
Because when people will come, they won't shoot the person that hi the hijacker. Why? Because he's standing behind the people that are hijacked. That's how you're guarded. Now in this twisted theology, why won't God? <laughs> we have a hostage. God can't destroy Jerusalem. Why? Because what's guarding us from the anger of God is the house of God. And this distorted hostage theology where the house of God is guarding you from the anger, anger of God, a terrible paradox is created, the paradox of the end of the first temple. It's the following paradox. Why was the temple created in the first place? Well, I think in the first place, according to Leviticus, according to the Bible, the temple was created in order to purify society from its sins. Well, it turns out that throughout the years and the generations, the temple was not purifying society from its sins. It's the very reason for its sins. When they feel immune, we can do whatever we want, and we are immune, nothing bad can happen. The temple is not purifying us from sin. It's the reason for sin. Jeremiah says, when the temple is not purifying us, but creating an illusion of immunity that's corrupting us, that temple needs to be destroyed. Taking us to the following paradox of the temple. Why was the temple destroyed according to the prophet Jeremiah? Well, here's the thing. It wasn't destroyed in the end because we didn't take it seriously. It was destroyed because we took it too seriously. The temple was destroyed just because, and I would say this is a good metaphor for religion. Religion is great only when you take it, when you don't take it too seriously. But once you start believing that ritual offers you immunity, and as a result, you can behave any way you want to behave because your existence and your quality of life is guaranteed. Well, that's when the temple, the sacrifice, the rituals turn against themselves. And here I want to ask one last question. How did this happen? How did it happen that the people of Jerusalem believed that God lives there, therefore they can't be destroyed, therefore they can behave any way they want because they enjoy divine immunity? How did this happen? Well, there's an interesting answer that scholars and interpreters throughout the generation found, came up with, and it's extremely persuasive. The answer lies 145 years beforehand. 145 years beforehand, there was an attack on Jerusalem led by Sanherif, the king of Ashur, of Assyria, I think you say. Assyria, Ashur. And he creates a siege on Jerusalem. And he's about to crack Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem. And this is documented in Book and Kings 2. And then something happened. Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. The king Chizkiah panics. Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And then something happens. Deus ex machina. 
The Assyrian army packs its bags and leaves. By the way, this event is not only documented in Kings 2, it's also there's testimony outside of the Bible for this event. In the Museum of London, you can find this great, great piece where it documents all the achievements of Sanhedrin, the king of Assyria, and describes every city that he destroyed. And when it comes to Jerusalem, he says, it says, they create a surge on Jerusalem, and that doesn't say anything. And why doesn't it say anything? We assume that if that siege would have left, would have led to victory, he would have said that and documented that and taken pride in that. Because he didn't. Seems like it was only a siege. Then something happened. It failed. A miracle happened. They were saved. 145 years later, there's a strong awareness in Jerusalem that Jerusalem can't be destroyed. Why do they think that Jerusalem can't be destroyed? How did they develop this somewhat distorted theology that if God lives here, so God won't destroy Jerusalem? How did that happen? It seems like they believe that because they were saved once, they'll be saved again. It seems like they believed that what happened was supposed to happen, and therefore, it will always happen. That history will repeat itself. In other words, why were the people of Jerusalem so corrupt? Why did they have a sense of immunity? Why couldn't they listen to the prophet? Why, and all this attitude that led to the destruction of Jerusalem, why did this happen? This happened because they learned from history. They made the mistake of learning from history and believing that, his, that the past is similar to the future. This phenomenon, this phenomenon was captured by one of the disciples of Baruch Spinoza. But how do we experience time? And he said that time is the opposite of space in the following sense. When we walk in space, what do we always see? We see where we're walking to. But in time, it's opposite. Because I never see where I'm going, what do I always see? So he says, time is like this. We always walk backwards. Because what do we see? We see what we walk through, but what, we, what can't we see? We can't see where we're going. That's the problem. In order to overcome this anxiety, because we could only see the past. Because as opposed to space, when it comes to time, we can't see what's in front of us, but only what's in back of us. Because of that, that anxiety creates the temptation to assume that everything you saw is also what you're going to see. We project what's familiar on what's not familiar. That's how we somehow try to release ourselves from that anxiety. It's a classic human weakness that we're trapped in our own experience, that we're locked in our biography. 
My wife taught me once. She didn't really teach this, she actually instructed this. If I should ever go to the Makolet, to the market, mini market, convenience store, convenience store, when I am very hungry. Because <laughs> when I go and I'm starving, so I buy way too much. And the same, you shouldn't ever go after lunch. Why? Because when you're not hungry and you're at the convenience store, what do you buy? A carrot. I remember, it's the, it's the, it's the human tendency where we're trapped the way I am now. I kind of feel like that's how reality always is. I remember I made a terrible mistake about five years ago. I was in Israel, and I had, a, I had to go to Chicago the next day. And in Israel, sometimes we have, like now, very warm winters. And it was one of those winters, I mean, I mean everybody here is saying, oh, it's so warm today. And I'm like, an Israeli, what are you? <laughs> but it was one of those days where we were all in shorts, really, we were all, it was a very, very warm day in the winter. I look on the internet, I see Chicago, I think I'm an Israeli, so I think in centigrade, minus 12 degrees centigrade. I don't know how much it is in Fahrenheit, what is that like? What? Very, very cold. And it was a very, very hot day, it was, it was a burning day. Now you know how, when it's very hot outside, you can't touch sweaters. You can't touch them. I was packing my bags and put on some shorts, <laughs> a t-shirt. I'm landing in Chicago feeling so dumb. But what, what happens when you're trapped in your experience, when you can't see beyond your experience, which takes me to the Yom Kippur War. Vadat Granat asks, how is it that they surprised us? And they came up with an important term that managed to dominate the Israeli conversation for a generation. It's the following term. They surprised us not because we didn't have the information. We had all the information. We saw the movements of the tanks. We saw them telling the Soviet advisors to leave Egypt. We saw everything coming. We saw armies getting closer and closer and closer to the borders. The problem wasn't that we didn't collect the information. The problem is that we didn't analyze correctly the information. Therefore, it was a problem of interpretation. And the problem was, and this is a, a term that they've coined in this important committee of Agrana, the problem was haconsentia. There was a certain concept that led them to interpret the information the wrong way. It's the following concept. There is not going to be a war. The Arabs are not going to attack us. Now listen, when that's the concept, when it's clear that the Arabs are not going to attack us, when you see the tanks getting closer and closer and closer to the borders, so you interpret in light of that concept, so what are those tanks if they're not attacking us? So what's that? It's a very big exercise. And when they get even more close, so what's that? It's a serious exercise. And when they start crossing the canal, what's that? 
Well, they're trying to practice for the real thing. And when they're shooting, well, they have to have targets. They were, you're trapped, they were trapped in a concept. And they were interpreting the information in light of the concept. Now it seems very, like we're mocking the Israeli intelligence. How can they think? How can they, instead of creating concepts in light of information, they were interpreting information in light of a concept. The thing is that the concept made sense, and it's the following concept. The concept is that the Egyptian and Syrian army will not attack us if they don't have the the capability to enter Israel, destroy the Israeli army, and conquer Tel Aviv. They won't have the capability to do that. They won't do that. It means it's a following intelligence understanding that since we don't know, it's very hard to know the intentions of the enemy, but it's easier to know the capabilities of the enemy, so we derive the attentions from its capabilities. And we knew what they had, and we knew their tanks, their airplanes, and we knew that they don't have the capability to invade Israel, destroy the army, and conquer Israel. And I think this makes a lot of sense to derive the attentions of the enemy from its capabilities. So we decided, it was a decision of the Israeli intelligence community, that all we can do is try to measure their capability and from there derive their intentions. Now I have a question. If this concept makes so much sense, so why didn't it? If it makes sense, right, to derive the intentions of your enemy from its capability, so if it's so smart, why wasn't it? Here's the thing, and here's my take on the Agranat Committee report. It seems like, so okay, that was the concept. But also the concept had a concept. There was a larger concept that gave birth to the concept that they won't attack us because they don't have the capabilities to attack us. And it's the following concept. When going to try to attack Jews, it's always an attempt to destroy them. That was the invisible concept. And where, where was that concept born? It was born from 1,900 years of Jewish history. From Vilmiza, from Megenza, from Spain, from, you know, you know, the horrors of the 20th century, from 1947, when they attacked us, they wanted us joyous, from 1967, Jamal Abdel is speaking about the great war that's going to destroy Israel. What no one thought was that maybe this time around, they don't want them to destroy us. Now, if someone would have thought about that, that maybe they don't want to destroy us. Maybe they only want to conquer 10 kilometers of Sinai, 13 kilometers of the Golan Heights. Just somehow to regain some of the respect that they lost in the Six Day War in 1967. Because if someone have said, that's what they want, not to destroy us, but to conquer 10 kilometers of Sinai, so they would have noticed, hey, for that, 
modest attack, they have the capabilities. And if they have the capabilities, that might mean that they have the intentions. And if they have the intentions, so what are these tanks that are getting close to us now? Maybe it's a real war. They surprised us in the Yom Kippur War because we were trapped in our own history. They surprised us in the Yom Kippur War because we were trapped in our experience, in our biography. Because every time going attacked Jews, it was to destroy Jews, this must be. That's what happens. That's why they attack us. They don't have the capability to do that, so they don't have the attention to do that. Jeremiah is saying to the people, don't learn from history. The fact that you were saved once doesn't mean that you're abused. You might not be saved again. History doesn't repeat itself. And for the same reason that the first temple was destroyed because they were trapped in their experience, we suffered the surprise attack of the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur War is a testimony that Israel is not always Israel. That where Israelis are famous for thinking out of the box, thinking differently, not being trapped in their own memories, but doing things surprising, surprising and different, that didn't work. Our Jewishness defeated our Israeliness. And then there was Alec Shalom. Then there was Alec Shalom that said, maybe we shouldn't invest everything we have to push them away, because it's not the end of the world if they conquer a part of Sinai. He had a creative idea. Maybe, hey, we found a gap between the armies. Let's infiltrate that gap, go to the other side. We were Israelis again. Thinking about fresh ideas, not trapped in our old ideas, in our old concepts. Thinking out of the box. We were Israelis again. And that's how we won the war. Alex Sharon's commanders didn't like that he did that. Alex Sharon's commanders thought it wasn't a good idea, it was too daring. And many times, when, and when he started going, they wanted him to go in, and they tried to stop him many times doing the way. And he was very not obedient. He was very not obedient. And actually, if there's one a aspect of Alex Sharon's character, he's disobedient. And his disobedience saved us in 1973. And his disobedience turned against us in 1982. Anyone that asks, how did Alex Shalom do that to Menachem Begin in 82? And take us into Lebanon where we weren't supposed to be, and go all the way to Beirut when the Israeli government didn't want us there. And we dislike the disobedience of Alec Sharon. We have to remember that Alec Sharon comes with a package. And the same, and when he was disobedient to Menachem Begin in '82, he led to a disaster. When he was disobedient to Gorodish and Barlev in '73, he was our savior. 
Alec Shalom is a package. It's Israel at its worst, and it's Israel at its best. 1973 was a reminder that we can't be trapped in our past. And sometimes we shouldn't learn from our experience. 1982 was a reminder that sometimes it's a good idea to learn from your experience, to learn from the experience of other nations, and to listen to the people that are above you. That's the paradox of Alex Shalom. The same character that saved us in 73 was the same character that screwed everything us, everything up for all of us in 1982. The same person who built the settlements was the one who destroyed them. The same person who built the Likud was the one that tore the Likud into two. That's Alex Shalom. I'm running out of time. I wanted to share Alex Shalom as a reflection of what's best in us and what's worst in us. And especially to think about this biblically and historically through the great window of the Yom Kippur surprise. It was being trapped in history that led to surprise. And it was that creative thinking that's not trapped in no concepts that saved us in that war. I want to think about Netanyahu a little bit. I wait, uh, uh, Shalom took all our time. But as I told you, Shalom always takes everything. <laughs> his influence is always greater than his position. Even this lecture. I want to say something about, about Netanyahu and then open this for a discussion. We can't say all this about Netanyahu. Actually, Netanyahu didn't lead us to any big war. He didn't lead us to any big peace. There isn't any big initiative that Netanyahu ever led as a politician. This, the, even the initiative, the peace initiative, that's now on the table, who's leading it? Netanyahu? Who's leading it? Kerry. What, what did he ever lead, Netanyahu? When did he ever come up with a new, fresh idea? And like, Rabbi West Describes Shalom like a bulldozer. Try to shape history. When did he do that? He's a different kind of a leader. Different kind of a leader. But a very important one. If we want to think about Netanyahu, I'd like to think about the Netanyahu government. And Israelis don't like Netanyahu. Most Israelis dislike Netanyahu. Many Israelis despise Netanyahu. And the paradox of Netanyahu, he's one of the most disliked politicians in Israel. And he's the only politicians that they would vote for. According to polls, 40% of Israelis will think Netanyahu should be prime minister. And then, like 13% think Yair Lapid is, 12% Yitzhak Herzog from Labour, similar Avigdor Lieberman, similar 12-13% Naftali Bennett. There is no one even challenging the leadership of Netanyahu. The most votable politician in Israel 
is the one that's probably disliked most. Now it's hard to understand the enigma of Netanyahu, but let me share some facts about the leadership of Netanyahu. The man of no great initiative, no grandiose leadership, he doesn't see himself as, a pers- as an architect of history. He has a different understanding of what leading is. And one of the, he didn't perform any miracles like Shalom. Cross the canal, destroy the settlements that he built. <laughs> he doesn't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> He's a leader of small gestures. Israel... And he's, I would say, we should give him credit for four very important achievements of the Israeli government. One is the phenomenal success of the Israeli economy. Europe, and as you know, Israel is an island. It's an island. Geographically, it's not. But effectively, it is. That Israelis have to always, Israelis go to places because if you get in a car and drive around Israel, there's nowhere to go. Now it's not an ocean that surrounds you, but it feels like an ocean. It's an island. And that's had a tremendous effect on our economy. Our only way to succeed is to export. And when the world enters recession and your economy is found in an export, your, your economy is supposed to enter recession. Israel didn't. Israel didn't. In a very unstable economic world, there's growth in Israel. Second important achievement of the Netanyahu government is that the past year and a half, security-wise, were the most quiet years in the past 20 years. The amount of rockets landing in Israel, terrorist attack in Israel, riots happening in Israel, the most stable years in decades. Now think about it this way. Israel is enjoying the most stable years, specifically in the time when the Middle East is not stable. The Middle East is less stable than it ever was, and Israel is more stable than it ever was. That's very not trivial. A third achievement is political. There is a tradition of no political stability in Israel. Remember that every two years we have an election in Israel. That governments are created and then they fall very quickly. Political stability is rare in Israel. Netanyahu's last government was the first government in more than 20 years. It lasted for more than four years. So the three successes of Netanyahu, of his government, that in an unstable political tradition, he creates stable politics. And in an unstable region, we have some sense of stability and security. And in a work, and economically speaking, when the world is in recession, Israel is experiencing growth. That's not a, that's not big. It's not a big war and not big peace. It's just 
simple management. And finally, diplomatically speaking, Netanyahu was a great diplomatic achievement because he located the Iran issue in the center of the world conversation. So if you think about all these achievements, now how do I know these achievements of the Netanyahu government? I'll tell you how I know. Because if Israel was experiencing recession today, we would blame Netanyahu. Through terrorist attacks in Israel today, we blame Netanyahu. And if the government was collapsing, we blame Netanyahu. And if Iran would have been forgotten, we blame Netanyahu. And because we blame him, if we didn't have these achievements, I think it's only fair, and no one does this, to credit him for these achievements. Let's think about Netanyahu and Sharon as two archetypes of leadership. One is a leader that takes initiative, that makes big moves, that has tremendous influence. And the other is a leader of small moves, not great leadership, but small management. It's interesting that Netanyahu and Shalom were from the same government. Because psychologically different, psychologically speaking, they have two different temperaments. Shalom is a man that tries to, to create history. And Netanyahu is a man that reacts to history. Shalom is a man of intervening in events. And Netanyahu is a man of trying to modestly shape those events. These are two archetypes of leadership. If I want to respect something, there's a lot of admiration for Shalom. And people either admire Shalom or are terrified from Shalom. And Bibi's constantly is somewhat is somewhat um, seen in Israel at least as someone not very effective, mocked. All the achievements I said is never because of him, it's always because of circumstances. But in order to understand Netanyahu, I want to share one moment in the biography of Netanyahu. And with that to close this to close this presentation, I need to open it to some of your questions. I think in order to understand Netanyahu, we have to reflect in one moment in the biography of Netanyahu. He was here in Boston, in MIT, and then he gets the news. What was the terrifying news that he gets? That when everyone is cheering and rallying, because of the great success of the Israeli army in Entebbe, there's one family that gets bad news. That's the Netanyahu family. His father is here at the time in America. Netanyahu Bibi is here in America. He gets the news and he realizes that the person that has to share the horrible news with his parents is him. So he describes it. He has to drive from Boston to Philadelphia. Is it, is it a five-hour drive? Does that make sense? So he says it's the longest five hours of my life. And those five hours, from the moment he realized his brother died, till the moment that he's going to change the life of his parents forever, he has five hours. 
I think those five hours between his brother and his father are five hours that without understanding them, we can't ever understand him. Yoni Netanyahu was the shining brother of the family. Yoni Netanyahu, the one that led the raid on Antebi and led us to that great victory of Antebi. He was the one that was ordained to be the leader of Israel in the eyes of the Netanyahu's, not Bibi. And Yoni Netanyahu was celebrated as an Israeli hero. There's songs about Yoni Netanyahu in Israel. I won't sing them now because I appreciate you too much. <laughs> and his father, if Yonatan Yao is a celebrated Israeli, Ben Tzionatan is the ultimate outsider. He wasn't even, it wasn't that he wasn't accepted by Labour Party Israeli. Even Zeev Jabotinsky, the alternative to Labour, rejected him. He was outsider even among the outsiders. He couldn't get a position as a professor in Israel. That's why he was here. In those five hours between his celebrated brother and his rejected outside father, and now is carrying this noise, and the way he describes it. And I heard about this description from the from Shimon Peres, reflecting this law with a lot of empathy for the Prime Minister. He comes out of the car, and his father sees him from the window. And his father's first reaction was a smile, because he sees his son. It took him a few seconds for that smile to completely, you know, get wiped off his face because he realized what his son is going to tell him. His entire life at Tayal be trapped between his brother and his father. Which you mean the hero of Israel or the prophet? His father was extremely right-wing, no trust in the Arabs, thought that we can't ever make a deal with the Arabs, and look at Bibi, Bibi's biography. His brother, why did he die? He died because the Israeli government will never, never negotiate with terrorists and never release terrorists towards hostages. That's why his brother died. Bibi didn't do a lot. No big moments. But the only heroic moment that Bibi has, two, uh, three and a half year, three years ago, was the moment when he let 1,000 terrorists go towards one Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit. The greatest moments of Bibi as a prime minister, the moment they gave about him his glory and his popularity, was the moment where he turns his back the legacy of his brother. John Kerry is now asking Netanyahu to turn us back to the legacy of his father. In that sense, Sharon as a prime minister turns us back to the entire biography.
Will Netanyahu do the same? We'll see. Questions? Yeah. Okay. I'll start. Okay. Uh, what do you think about Irish Facebook? Hmm. <laughs> I'll say one thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, there's a lot of aspects to the Irish Facebook. I'll say one thing. One of the problems of our conversation about Israel is that it's hard to be nuanced about Israel. No, I'll put it differently. It's very easy to be nuanced about Israel. It's also very easy to be passionate about Israel. But it's very hard to be passionate about Israel and still nuanced about Israel. Most people know they're nuanced about Israel. Everything is complicated. Is um, They lost their passion. They they're passionate. They're having nuance. I think what I don't agree with a lot of parts of Ali Shavit's book, but I'll say one thing not about the book, but about the man. Ali Shavit is a lover of Israel. Ali Shavit manages in his great writing to express tremendous passion and a great love for Israel at the same time, tremendous amount of nuance. That's, I think, the greatness of Shavit. Yeah. Well, I didn't finish the book, so I'm not depressed yet. <laughs> I'm not depressed yet. So, Amy's asking, saying that Ali Shavit's book is incredibly, incredibly depressing and pessimistic. And it's like everything is terrible in Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> I think Ali Shavit tells a very partial story of Israel. A very partial story. And Ali Shavit is speaking about, it starts with the fact that the founders of Israel are the founders of Ein Chalod in 1921. Right? And by the founders of Israel, I think the foundations of Zionism were 4,000 years old, not 80 years, not 90 years old. And I think what the book lacks is Jewish depth. And if it would have had, and you see, the book speaks about how the Mizrahim came to Israel and rejected them. And religious Zionism had no room, so they go to the settlements, because we reject because mainstream Israel rejected them. It's about how mainstream Israel can't reject different parts of Israel. And one of the reasons why it rejected is what Shabit doesn't notice, is that we don't have a Jewish language that unites you. All you have is power. And power divides us. I think the fact that it's very possible that many young secular Israelis, their religion is not peace anymore. He's right. The religion is not socialism anymore. He's right. But what he doesn't notice is that their religion might be Judaism. And the more they return to Judaism, the way secular Israelis are returning to Judaism, 
The way they're doing it in Ain Prat and the way they're doing it around Israel where there's a new wave of hunger for Judaism without becoming orthodox. The fact that we can tap into our tradition without its authority, but with its inspiration. That might create a shared language between different parts of Israeli society. And that, I think, is the optimistic chapter missing in Shavit's book. Yes. Punished for Sabra and Shatila? Okay. Okay. It's a very big question what really happened in Sabra and Shatila. Here are the facts. A Lebanese militia entered a Palestinian refugee camp and killed many, pal- many helpless, innocent women and children. So you have here Lebanese killing Palestinians. No Lebanese was car- no no one in Lebanon was court-martialed. The only people that were blamed for Lebanese killing Palestinians was Israel. Now, for good reason. What's the reason? The fact that we were there, we should have known that when they enter those villages, they'll perform a massacre. But let's just think about this for one minute. If not intervening when a massacre is happening means you're guilty for that massacre, I would agree. But what does that mean about the Western civilization? Well, that sure helps. No, no, let's take one more. Hmm. Repeat the question. Okay, he's asking a question because, of course, I know the answer. What is Netanyahu's strategy concerning the negotiations? Um, okay, is it. Is he his father's son? Meaning he's playing John Kerry, and all he wants to do is call the Palestinian bluff, but in the end not to make any movements, not to do anything? Or is he turning against his father's legacy? And he's ready for a very big historic move, meaning he won't be a Netanyahu anymore, he might be a Shalom. A big historic move, changing history. I don't know, but here's two theories. Theory number one is that, um, see, let's analyze this politically very quickly. If Bibi goes with John Kerry, he loses not only his government, but his party. The Likud is not with him. So the only way to do that is create an alternative party. Meaning being an Ali Shalom. Because that's exactly what Shalom did. Is he going to do that? Many Israelis believe so. Many Israelis believe he could do that. Why? Here's another paradox of Israeli politics. 70% of Israelis think he should mean the, the voters think he should, the members of his party think he should. Now, who is he playing for? His party or his voters? It's a big question. I don't know what the answer is, 
I would like to say is that if everyone, people that are cynical, think that it's impossible that Bibi Netanyahu is going, is preparing himself for a big historic move, why and why do we say that? Because if we measure Bibi by right, many, many years that he's in power, never doing anything daring, not in peace, not in war, if we measure Bibi in light of everything we know about Bibi, I think that would be the same stake we were speaking about tonight. I think it's possible that the future will be different than the present. I think it's possible that people could change. And I think it's possible that we're in for a, group, for a very big surprise. My favorite. Okay, I have no idea why he's doing that. I'll tell you what I think. Repeat the question. Okay. Israel is demanding that Palestinians recognize Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. I don't understand that demand. And there's three options. Option one, there's a big concept here that I don't understand and no one understands. Or that's a bargaining card. Meaning he's demanding it, demanding it, demanding it, and in the last minute he'll trade them for things that mean something, like like Jerusalem or the Jordan Valley. That would be an optimistic understanding. A pessimistic understanding is that he's using them as the ultimate excuse. Not to make a piece of the house Okay, one last question. Ronnie? This is a follow-up to that. With Netanyahu, he always does something that's antagonistic to the people, particularly to America. When does he announce he's going to increase the settlements? When Biden is in Israel. Why is he insisting? He does that every time that something is going to do, he will do something again. Mm -hmm. And it's the same as with the Jewish state. When when uh, Bacon made peace with Sadat, he didn't insist that Sadat called it the Jewish state. When Rabin made peace with uh, Jordan, what did you say? He didn't insist it should be a Jewish state. So what is his plan? What is he doing? Why is he always there to... I don't... Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All I can tell you is one interesting thing. Is that Bibi is trapped because when he picks a fight with Obama, he becomes more popular in Israel. And when he plays along with the Obama administration, he gets less popular in Israel. So he's in a trap. He's in a trap. Is he playing for in the world scene or in the domestic Israeli scene? It's very, very it's very, very complicated to be a leader of Jews. <laughs> You're not going to beat that ending, so thank you. Very much. Okay. Thank you. Lala Tal, thank you very much for coming out.